Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Jake Sullivan has stated that Ukrainian President Zelensky should fear for his safety, which is leading some to suspect that the U.S. intelligence agencies may be plotting the demise of the Ukrainian leader. Also, Russia's military operation is nearing an inflection point as the battle for eastern Ukraine seems near an end. Joining us now to discuss this and more, Scott Ritter, a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq, author and much more. Scott, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Well, thank you very much for having me. Let's start here. One of Napoleon's observations is that you should never interrupt your enemies when they're making a mistake. Russia knows this, not least because they were careful not to interrupt Napoleon himself in 1812. Putin and his team have had plenty of opportunities to meet NATO's leaders, observe them, negotiate with them, and assess them. It is unlikely they're impressed, but when they start their special mil- started their special military operation in Ukraine, they could have never dreamed how self-destructive NATO would be. And that is... Uh, Operation Z, don't interrupt. Scott Ritter, your thoughts? I, I mean, I, I agree with the, um, the assessment of the incompetency of NATO in the West. I, I disagree that Putin never could have predicted it. <laughs> I predicted it, and I'm a Russian propagandist, just as the Ukrainians. I'm on their list. Um, but I, I predicted exactly this uh, in December. I, I, I wrote that the West will lose politically, economically, militarily that NATO is a paper tiger, the Ukrainians cannot beat the Russians, economic sanctions will backfire, and political uh, leaders in Western Europe who promulgated these failed policies will pay a political cost when they are voted out of office. All of that is transpiring. And if I could have predicted it, I can guarantee you that uh, the wiser heads that reside in the uh, Russian Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs uh, predicted this as well. That's why they that's why they implemented their policies. You don't implement a policy on a wing and a prayer. You implement a policy because you've actually planned it out. You have a desired outcome and you have a, a, a desired mechanism, a path towards achieving that outcome. And the Russians have been very disciplined in staying on the path on all three of these uh, journeys that come together at one with the total Russian victory. In this piece, uh, they also talk about not only from the military side, but they talk about it strategically from the energy side. And, for example, they talk about Germany manufacturing needs energy. German energy comes from Russia, not all of it, about 20 percent. But coal is 40, nuclear is 10, and they've reduced uh, those alternative sources. So not only is this a matter of military strategy— it's a matter of economic strategy. No, absolutely. I mean, this. I mean, we we should start by noting that the West designed this conflict as a as an economic conflict. That the entire priority that the West placed was on destroying Russia economically. They minimized the military. Uh, aspects of this conflict, not because they didn't think there was going to be a military aspect, but because they believed that Russia would not be able to sustain it, that once these sanctions hit Russia, Russia would become paralyzed economically and then politically. Uh, 
they they actually believe that this would be the end of Vladimir Putin's regime. So, um, you know, the, the, the economic aspect of this conflict has always been uh, front and center, uh, uh, you know, for, on both the, the uh, Western side, but also the Russians, because the Russians, of course, had plenty of time to uh, prepare a response when Joe Biden uh, famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, stared his counterpart, Vladimir Putin, in the eye in Geneva, Switzerland, and told him straight up, this is what we're going to do to you. Um, that was in June of 2021. <laughs> a year later, uh, Russia's done it to him. Uh, Naked Capitalist has an interesting article, Russia's campaign in Ukraine nearing an inflection point. Notice how the amount of Western reporting on Ukraine has fallen off dramatically. That's because the war is going well for Russia and its allies. Scott, if you could update us on what, what's going on on the ground. It certainly seems like Russia's building up for maybe a major offensive here in, in August. But uh, your thoughts of, uh, of where we are now, what's happening on the ground? Well, the Russians have created the perfect military system. Um, that is, they've taken their military, their doctrine, their equipment, their troops, their force structure, and they have adapted it to the reality on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, the war in Ukraine is unlike anything uh, we've seen in modern times. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians had eight years to dig in, and they have built this extensive network of trenches and bunkers uh, reinforced in depth throughout all of uh, Donbass and starting to extend back into Ukraine. Um, and you know, what the Russians have done is they said, OK, you want to play fixed positional warfare? We can do that. We're not going to storm your trenches. We're not going to do any of that stuff. We're going to sit back and blow you up. We're going to grind you down. We're going to destroy everything. Listen to the commentary coming out of people who have served on the front lines, especially the, uh, the so-called mercenaries. They said, we never saw a Russian. <laughs> we, went there. we never saw a Russian. All we did is get the garbage pounded out of us 24-7. We never had a chance. All we do is sit there and die. We never saw a Russian. Think about that. The Ukrainian military is being defeated on a scope and scale unimaginable, and the Ukrainian military very rarely sees their Russian uh, opponent. Why? Because if you can see somebody, you can kill somebody. And the Russians' goal here, to uh, you know, paraphrase Patton, uh, is to make the other dumb son of a gun die for his country, not to have you die for your country. And the Russians have perfected this, and this is what's happening. Now, this process is slow. It's laborious. Uh, it's resource-intensive. One of the things we're finding out is apparently the Russians have all the resources they need. All those people who said they're going to run out of ammunition, they're going to run out of this, they're going to run out of that. Russians ain't running out of anything. You know who's running out of everything? Ukraine, including all the stuff that NATO has provided. I mean, the, the French have basically uh, given up, I forget, how many years' worth of artillery production uh, that they've promised now to the Ukrainians. So France's military is suffering. Germany says, we can't send you anymore. We don't have any more to send. The Canadians say, we've tapped out. The Brits, they got nothing. America, we're giving away so much, we no longer have sufficient stocks to fight a war. Um, so NATO is empty. This is the reality. And at some point in time, the Russians are going to grind their way through that last trench. And there's not going to be Ukrainian military left to fight. This may be repetitive, but you use the word grind it out. And a lot of the narrative that we're hearing here, when now we do hear narrative, and that's becoming few and far between, 
that grinding out is interpreted as indications of failure. You were talking about the artillery barrage. I've been reading accounts. In fact, I heard Malcolm Nance say on Friday that the artillery barrage is an indication that Russia is losing. So, (laughs) and I, you know, so, but there's, again, there's this narrative that, that says basically everything you're saying, Scott, is not an indication that Russia is winning. It's an indication that Russia is losing. I know, I know. And Mike Tyson's right hook, every time he threw it, there's an indication he was losing. Because, you know, he had such a good left jab. Why in God's name would he throw that right hook? Oh, yeah, to knock the guy out and win the fight. Uh, with all due respect to Malcolm Nance and anybody who says that, um, they, they're just discrediting themselves as, um, as a military analyst. Russia's always used artillery. <laughs> so the fact that Russia is using artillery, the primary weapon system that their military is predicated on, why would that ever be a sign of weakness? I mean, the Germans, you know, if, if it's Blitzkrieg, that's the tanks, baby. That's like saying, hey, Germany's leading with three panzer divisions. They're losing. <laughs> um, that's stupid. The Russians are leading with the best weapon system they have, and they are dominating the battlefield. What's frustrating to the West is that Russia's not taking a tank, its tanks out in the open field uh, and leaving anti-tank teams unsuppressed so that the Russian tanks can be destroyed by Ukrainian anti-tank missile fire. Man, that's got to irritate a lot of people that the Russians aren't doing what we want them to do. What the Russians are doing is winning. And you know it is frustrating for NATO and Ukraine to design the military campaign based upon bringing to the forefront some of this technologically advanced weaponry uh, to kill Russians, to, to blow up their tanks, to blow up their artillery, and only to find that the Russians refuse to play ball. Russia has, and I said this early on, they have perfected a new mechanism of warfare that is designed specifically for the war in Ukraine. And it's this mechanism of warfare is designed to maximize Ukrainian casualties and minimize Russian casualties. And the fact that Russia is succeeding in this could never in any universe, that maybe Malcolm Nance's universe, be construed as Russia is losing. You know, uh, um, um, Scott, for like all my life until my back went bad on me, I like to play basketball. Played in high school, community college, leagues all through my, all the way up into my 40s. I was playing in a 35 and over league. I know, but pick up ball. Here's what I know. When the other team is arguing amongst themselves, you're going to win. Every time you ever see that, you know, when the other team starts arguing, ah, you didn't pass me the ball, ah, you missed the lap, you're going to win. Here's why I say that. There's an interesting article. Zelensky is surrounded by traitors and spies. He is now firing people around him. He's looking over his shoulder. When that happens, collapse is imminent, in my opinion. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter. Let's never forget that Zelensky went from being a 78 percent approval rating president when he was elected to around 23 percent when the war started. Um, He was already a failed political leader when this conflict started. Uh, The only way he could survive was to outlaw political parties, to ban political media, um, and to start arresting uh, people and prosecuting people, including the oligarch that underwrote his entire presidential aspirations. Um, And then he has surrounded himself 
with British intelligence officials and American intelligence officials uh, who have him engaged in a ongoing verbal civil war with the Ukrainian Minister of Defense. Um, this man is horribly unpopular. You know, the West has built him up to be Winston Churchill or King Leonidas. Uh, he's not. He is a comedian who became president and has failed at everything he has done. His only success is the success of propaganda. And I've said this over and over again, and I'll say it again. You know, hot air can only get you so far. At some point in time, you got to stop talking and you got to start doing. And Zelensky can't do. He's incompetent, surrounded by incompetent people, and the competent people are getting fed up, especially the competent people in the military who recognize that this is an unwinnable conflict and to continue going down this path will only result in not only tens of thousands more dead Ukrainian soldiers, but thousands of dead Ukrainian civilians, and it's becoming apparent the death of Ukraine as a modern nation state. That's what's happening right now. The Russians have basically said, it's over, dosvidaniya, goodbye Ukraine. Um, you know, as long as Zelensky's in power, uh, Russia has said he's got to go. He's an outlaw, you know, outlaw leader, the head of an outlaw regime. Um, and you, people can say, well, that's just the Russian speaking. If you haven't learned by now, what Russia says, Russia does. So Zelensky's history, he's toast. And if the Ukrainians keep fighting, what's going to be left of Ukraine, which will be significantly smarter than what Ukraine started with when this conflict, what will be left will be uh, so minimized as to not really even exist. And there's a danger that none of it will exist, that Ukraine will disappear as a modern state. Thank you very much, Scott. Um, I think you're right. I think you're on the money, and I think we are on the edge. You know, it's funny that the Ukrainians kept saying, yes, sir, come, uh, what was it, August, we're going to make our big moves with our million-man army, and I think August there's going to be big moves made with big armies, but I don't think it's going to be Ukraine the ones making them with uh, their million-man Ghost Army, whatever the case may be. Thanks a lot. We've been talking with Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. He is an author and much, much more. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The White House is concerned that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's plan to visit to Taiwan could spark a military crisis in the region. Also, President Biden's plans for Pacific NATO seem to be floundering as Asian nations refuse to join the coalition. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dr. David Wolalu. He is an international geopolitical consultant, veteran, author, and he's the host of the Geopolitics in Conflict show, a great show on YouTube. Dr. Wolalu, welcome back to The Critical hour. Hey, good to be with you, Galen. After the U.S. government received an unprecedentedly strong message from the Chinese side regarding U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's planned visit to the island of Taiwan, the Biden administration appears to be increasingly concerned that the visit could lead to catastrophic consequences for China-U.S. relations. Your thoughts, Dr. Walalu? Well, indeed, uh, the way I look at it is a straightforward provocation. That's what it is, because what is the purpose of the trip? First of all, 
And second question is, on whose behalf Nancy Pelosi is going to Taiwan? The White House is saying they don't want her to go. So the question becomes is, who is behind this agenda? And why is she going in the first place? And this is going to now come during a time that is uh, very, very sensitive in the uh, U.S.-China relations. And it's only the way it's interpreted now by many analysts. It's, it's straightforward provocation. That, that's the bottom line to it. Two things. One, what does it say to you about Joe Biden's control of his administration if the Speaker of the House is planning a trip of such a nature and Biden says publicly, I don't really know anything about the trip? That's the first question. And then the second question about this is, talk about how seriously we should take the language uh, from China as they talk about strong measures and there are other very descriptive terms that they've used because uh, Garland and I have been saying China doesn't bluff and people need, need to really take their reaction seriously. Well, indeed, Ormer. I mean, you're absolutely correct. Uh, the first part to your question is what it suggests is the lack of coordination. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So the White House saying one thing, Nancy Pelosi is doing one thing, and it tells you right, right there, which to me personally, and this is my personal opinion, I am not surprised at how fragmented our foreign policy is, how ambiguous our foreign policy is. That is lacking a vision. That is lacking direction. And it has no sense of uh, sort of uh, orientation, shall we say, as to why we do what we do. And of course, the language coming from China and I am a believer of that, that it's not bluffing, especially when it comes to Taiwan, because Taiwan to China is red line. And the, the language that China is using, uh, it's kind of a suggestive of we will be willing to take action this time around because we are not what we used to be 30 years ago. The, uh, general, the U.S. Uh, Chief of Staff, General Mike Malley, uh, who is, by the way, uh, stating this information that uh, China is being aggressive, he's currently in Jakarta. And why is that? <laughs> Just for your listeners to know. Because the president of Jakarta is about to head out tomorrow to China. So you can just see, they wanted to make sure that Indonesia does not lean towards China. And also this is in preparation of the naval exercises that's going to be uh, going on soon between U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and Japan is going to be in the, in the area of the Indian Ocean. In, in this Financial Times article, it says, Beijing, Beijing has not been explicit about its potential reaction. And then in the next paragraph, it says, several people said the White House was trying to assess whether China was making serious threats or engaging in brinksmanship. Well, to that, I would say, one, China is not going to be explicit about its reaction. It's basically said what it's going to do. And then people trying to assess brinksmanship. When was the last time China was engaged in brinksmanship? I don't think that that's how they play the game. You're absolutely correct. Of course, they're not going to disclose what it is. It's common sense. That's like Fort Pelosi herself 
didn't even disclose the time frame as to when she's planning to go to Taiwan. If she ends up going, all, all the indications suggest it's for next month, but there is no, 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 no clear dates for that one. So the idea that the Pentagon, and I read one of the reports from the Pentagon suggesting that China might end up shutting down her plane, that's, to me, it's an exaggeration. Why? It's because that will be considered an act of war. You're not going to bring down a plane uh, in that fashion. And this is one of the reasons why China did not disclose what kind of measures. And it has an array of measures at its disposal. Uh, and at the end of the day, we're going to be going back full circle to the main questions. Why is she going to Taiwan for? Why is provoking China for? And that's the bottom line that your listeners need to understand. Provoking China, in addition to what's going on with the Russia, it's no small matter. Yeah, you know, I was going to throw, say that, ask you about that. This is a very dangerous administration at a time when they're doing these exercises in the Middle East where they practice attacking um, uh, uh, Iran. And they're, you know, saying signing documents with Israel, basically saying we'll uh, use all means to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. At the same time, the CIA releases a document saying we have no evidence that Iran is seeking seeking a military, uh, seeking, seeking seeking a nuclear weapon. That's going on in Iran. Meanwhile, we've got politicians running around saying we're in a proxy war with Russia and we should send more troops and everything to Russia and provoking a war with Iran. I mean, you're talking about World War Three on three fronts. How dangerous is the Biden administration and these mad neocons? Which, which common sense suggests there is no way we can fight even two fronts let alone three fronts, because you'll be dealing in the Middle East, you'll be dealing in Europe, and you'll be dealing in Asia. We don't have the capacity, despite what you hear about the amount of nukes and all that stuff. I mean, most Americans do not understand this kind of uh, capabilities of the nuclear stuff, whatever. We only have about 400 missiles that are sort of armed, shall we say. You know, and If you compare that to Russians who have about 3,000 that are armed, this is not the whole stockpile of the 6,000 nuclear warheads versus what, whatever we have. But yeah, the idea of ratcheting up this rhetoric to provoking more contentions, more tensions, more uh, uh, sort of confrontational language with China, what for? When we have our own issues to be dealing with here. I mean, most Americans will be floored to find out that we have been selling oil to China, for example. You know, we've been selling oil to India. So while Americans are paying high prices at the gas pump, you know, what, what's, what's wrong with our government? Why are we embarking on this policy? That, and this is, again, I find myself saying this again. The foreign policy decision makers, they are amateurs. They have no clue about how to even decipher what geopolitical tensions are all about and to understand that their acts, their decisions are leading us to a very destructive outcome. RT has a piece, the U.S. wants to use China's neighbors against it. Will the plan succeed? Last week, Kamala Harris had a video address to the Pacific Islands Forum, and during the exchange, 
She vowed to increase U.S. cooperation with the island nations, warned of bad actors, and pledged to reopen U.S. embassies. Is this really too little too late? I would have to concur with your assessment, uh, Walmer, because whether you look at ASEAN countries, whether you look at some other countries in that region, they are realizing, they're seeing where the trends are headed. And there is no way, no matter what the U.S. said, and this is why Mike Milley is in Indonesia, there is a big concern about Indonesia moving because, and I argued this a year ago, there was a video on our channel that I argued back then that Indonesia is dumping the United States for China. And of course, we get a lot of criticism for it, but I am I am watcher of trends. I see where the trends are headed. And this is like uh, the vice president's statement. It's nothing but an empty, empty bravado. No more, no less. ASEAN countries or uh, Asian countries, rather, including ASEAN members, they are not going to jeopardize their economic prosperity. They are not going to be caught in the middle between the U.S. and China. They know that that conflict is coming one way or another, and they don't want to be part of it, nor will they allow their territories to be used to deal with, with, with China militarily, shall we say. Let me ask you this. There's, there's another possibility in all of the, the U.S.-China conflict. What happens if, the China, if, if, if China looks up and says, you know, we, we know the game plan. The U.S. provokes a war and then tries to, you know, invoke a million different sanctions against us. So we'll have to deal with the war and the sanctions. You know what? We're only going to deal with the sanctions and we'll employ the sanctions regime. What happens if China decides, you know what, uh, Walmart, uh, Amazon, uh, Nike, uh, Tesla, on and on and on and on, you ain't doing business in China no more. If China, if China says, you know, because, let's face it, if we go to war with the U.S., they're not going to be doing business with us anyway. We're just going to cut the war part out and, and, and then says, oh, and by the way, Taiwan, your entire economy is based on China. That shut down, too. If we're going to take a hit economically, we're going to be the ones delivering the blows. I mean, I think that's an option for China that people aren't considering. Your thoughts? Well, it is indeed, Garland, except that the Chinese know, they know that the U.S. is not in a position to impose sanctions on China. When you realize that 80 percent of your products are manufactured in China, can you just imagine, just take a step back for your listeners to, to really put this in perspective and let it sink in. Can you just imagine the products that we are getting on our shelves and no more? And right. the only whatever left, it goes 10 times higher in prices than what it already is. And this is why no administration, in my opinion, will be in a position to put sanctions on China because they know what the economic consequence is going to be. Of course, China is going to retaliate. And that's going to give an incentive also to China to go ahead and take over Taiwan, because this is going to have to be end one way or another. And now it's the perfect opportunity for them to do so. And that's why I don't see, first of all, the U.S. Uh, imposing sanctions, because we can't. Because you'll, you'll start seeing massive uh, demonstrations here in the U.S. when, you, you know, anytime that's human nature. Anytime you start messing around with people's livelihood and, 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 and food and so forth, you know, we go into a different uh, mo mode, shall we say. You're getting up into the survival uh, mode, that is. And there's uh, a line in this RT piece that says, 
first of all, whether the U.S. and Australia like it or not, these island countries do not want to be politically dominated by any specific power. And to me, that sentence speaks volumes about the difference in approaches between the United States and China. Well, that was the whole reason why Chinese move forward with economic incentives first, not a political. Now, don't get me wrong, and I'll say this, that does not mean China is the angel here or whatever. China has its own domestic agenda, has its own foreign policy aspirations, and whatever those aspirations are, they are going to be through economic means, not a military display or, you know, like what the U.S. did after World War II. And mind you also that China is already now in the process, slowly starting to engage in some countries by establishing military presence. Very, very small print, like, for example, in Cambodia. When I was in Cambodia, I didn't see any at that time. But, of course, that was a few years ago. Uh, I just got a, a word that, indeed, that base is good to go. In, 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 in Cambodia. Then you have also the uh, planning uh, in the process in Brazil, which will, si will send a signal to the United States that, hey, we're going to build a military presence in the Western Hemisphere, let alone Africa. Of course, there is a, a Djibouti already there. The uh, Chinese are already there. So the bottom line is that uh, how China approaches things, it's not the same way, of course, the United States did. Uh, did back then and still do to, to a point. And yet, regional countries and neighbors in China are watching, are seeing where things are. And of course, when you look at a whole Asia's economy of 34 plus trillion dollars, you're going to have to, you as a head of a, a nation there, you're going to have to think twice before you make uh, uh, foreign policy decisions that could really uh, send some uh, shocking economic waves your way, like exactly what Australia now is experiencing. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant. He's a veteran and author, and he hosts the Geopolitics in Conflict show, a great show on YouTube. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. An Oakland, Tennessee police officer has been placed on administrative leave after video surfaced of a driver that was brutally beaten over an alleged traffic violation. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have John Burris, he, a noted civil rights attorney. John Burris, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Well, good. Good to be with both of you. You know, I saw this case, and I it, uh, brought back a lot of memories I have of cases I've been in the past, and you would think that this kind of beating, this kind of conduct would not still be occurring, uh, but it is. Uh, and it only shows how a very minor event can become very tragic for an African-American male. 
because we don't know what kind of damage this young man will have for a long time in terms of uh, the kind of uh, beating he took, being hit on the head and stepped on and tased and batons and, and slammed. We're going to have lasting ramification, and, and, and a person's career could be changed. His life could be changed forever as a consequence of a minor incident where an officer should have exercised more discretion, could have understood that the case was so minor that it did not justify running into a person's house and beating him in, in, in the middle of his house. So a very tragic, unfortunate case um, for this young man, but also illustrates the harm that can come to a person uh, when dealing with the police over something very, very insignificant and minor. What about the, uh, the fact that they said they put on their lights, but they didn't put on their siren, that he stopped in front of his house and he runs into his house. I can understand the police being concerned about they don't know what he has in the house, but it just seemed to be out of hand from the very beginning. Absolutely. It was a very uh, minor event. Now, clearly, if I had to advise this young man, I certainly would not have advised running into the house. I would have sure. stopped. Uh, and that's the first thing is that you don't run in that manner. Then when you run into your house, there's a concept called hot pursuit. Now, uh, hot pursuit means you can run into the house after that person if, in fact, uh, uh, that person has committed a type of crime that would justify it. This did not justify it. But at the same time, you know, uh, the officer in his, in his own mind didn't know. He could have waited, of course try to make some contact with this young man or his family uh, at the house uh, and stayed outside without running inside. What I don't get is once they did run into the house, that doesn't mean you have to beat them. Just right. because they run into the house and run away, that's not a license to in administer street justice. Well, you know this. This is kind of an old line concept that if you run, you pay. And mm -hmm. part of paying is you're going to get beat. And that's certainly the issue that I have fought against for many, many years that just because the person runs, that doesn't mean you get to beat them at the end of it as punishment on the street for making you run. That's a, that's a concept that has existed in, in many departments, and, and it's one that we have to constantly fight against because what can happen is what happened here. A kid is severely injured, and a, and a promising career he has may be uh, shortcutted uh, uh, by what happened here, uh, something very minor and, and, and insignificant uh, that took place and the cops' overreaction to it. Well, yeah. And, you know, as you know, and, uh, you know, I taught this stuff in the academy and what I taught and I'm sure you've heard this. If someone hits you with a chicken feather, you can hit them with a turkey feather. You can only elevate the amount of um, uh, 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 physical response necessary to affect the arrest. Now, apparently they charged him with, you know, the normal stuff, which would be resisting arrest, blah, blah, blah. They beat this guy mercilessly. There, there, there. I don't see charges of assault on a police officer. I don't see any indications that a police officer was punched, hit, injured in any way. Yet this guy, it, it, it's not like they were twisting his arm to handcuff him and his wrist got broken, which you wouldn't want to happen. But okay, you could see that. But for somebody to be beaten, have their head stomped on basically, and to be tased would imply that there was an assault on an officer of some type. And there's no evidence that anything happened that this particular suspect did to raise the level of violence to the letter of this kind of force continuum thing going on. Your thoughts, uh, John? But, you know, my experience uh, with a police officer in this situation, once they use force because they didn't like because you resisted or you had a big mouth or you pulled back 
once they use force, then what's going to happen is, you, one, you're going to get beat up badly. And number two, you, the victim, is going to get charged. Right. And the charges that we have here, uh, resisting arrest, assault police officers, they're so typical and so common. Those are cover charges, from my way of thinking and my experience. So it's not surprising to me. That's why I said it's so tragic, because now he gets arrested for assault on a police officer, resisting arrest. Even if he prevails, those two charges will somehow remain on his record. And he is an engineer of some type. He want, if he wanted to work for the government or some kind of high sophisticated group, he will not be able to do it because this will be on his record. So it's really um, uh, grave uh, uh, collateral damage that he is going to suffer as a consequence of this all resulting from a very minor uh, event. Do we get to a point that his defense, and I'm using him generically, just based upon this circumstance, not necessarily this particular case, but do we get to a point where people of color in this country say, based upon the historic performance of the police, we are always in fear of our lives and therefore his getting out of his car and running into his house was a rational response because of George Floyd, Rodney King, and the list is as long as my arm that we just in, we can no longer trust the police. Well, I think you're right about no longer trusting the police, but I also know that because the police are dominant and the rules of society are favorable toward the police in terms of the apprehension, that that is a discretionary point they get control of. And it is not enough to say that I was afraid and you run. Because once you run, you create another form of offense that is there. So I don't know that we've gotten to that point, even though there's risk involved. I think the only way to, to, to handle something like that, to minimize that, even though you don't know who the police are and what they're likely to do, is that you yourself have to control that situation. You cannot run. You just cannot run. You cannot fight. You, you have to do what's necessary to de-escalate the situation. If the cops don't do it, you have to do it. Uh, because they have the gun, they have the power, and they can make these false charges against you that can ruin your life. And so I believe that you, and I give this message to young people and everyone, to protect yourself as best you can by following directions and de-escalating the situation. And don't put your life and the control and, and your well-being in the hands of another person, particularly a man with a gun or a woman with a gun, whom you don't know. So uh, I, I often recommend... You know, put your cell phone on, put, put your video cameras on, whatever you got to, to to record the circumstances, even if they don't like it, because you need to have a record about what happened. And fortunately, there's some videos here that, that should be helpful. But this is a situation where the DA has some responsibility here as well. The DA could look at these facts and say, this doesn't make any sense and dismiss these charges against this young man and also do what's necessary to get the record wiped clean, because that's the important part. It's not enough just to have, the, have it d dismissed. You need to have something that says your record has been expunged as if this never happened. Otherwise, collateral damage will be there forever. There's an article in the Washington Post that's interesting. Police sergeant charged after gripping a colleague's neck during arrest. The suspect was was already handcuffed, getting into the back of the police car in Florida when sergeant police uh, approached him with a can of, of pepper spray in one hand. Look at me, police yelled. If you're going to mace me, mace me, the suspect said. 
Police screamed he would remove the suspect's soul from his body. Apparently, a female officer walked up and tried to say something to him, and he choked another police officer. Again, it shows this guy was just out of control. If he's going to choke a police officer, uh, I wouldn't want to be the uh, the person who was pulled over. Your thoughts, John Burris? And now we have police departments, and it's just happened in Washington, D.C. They're training, they're requiring officers to intervene when other officers are going beyond the beyond their uh, their responsibilities. And so here you have a female officer intervening and the cop grabs her by the throat. Well, actually, you know, the intervention part, portion has been part of many departments for a long time. And fortunately, the officers don't abide by it. Many officers are present. They see bad conduct taking place. They would turn their head. They didn't see it, even though they may have. And they don't report. And that's because the code of silence that exists and the potential retribution is so powerful. The brotherhood, the sisterhood, however you want to call it, actually has power over these officers who prevent them from coming forward. When we did the case in Oakland where we had um, a consent decree involved, one of the conditions we made was the interference, that if you had to intervene, in order if you see something take place. But you know how many cases we've had on that? We haven't had five cases in 20 years where that has taken place. So I, I admire what this lady did right here, uh, even though she was attacked by this officer. Unfortunately for the, her, the department stood by her, and, and I hope that more of that takes place. The training is something they've always had to the extent it's reinforcing. I think that's a good idea, and, and there should be throughout the nation, then you have to hold those officers accountable because you can look at a fact pattern at some later point and says, Officer Jones, how come you didn't interfere there? And then they should be held accountable for not doing that. So once you show that the person who was in a position to interfere and chose not to do it and they get called up on the carpet or they receive some disciplinary conduct, then you will ultimately, I think, have a better uh, re um, reference and, and willingness to hold officers accountable and interfere than you have now. Thomas Lane, former police officer involved in the killing uh, in the, of George Floyd, was sentenced on Thursday to two and a half years for depriving George Floyd of medical care as he laid under the knee of Officer Derek Chauvin. Your thoughts, John Burris? Well, I think that, um, and that, the, that the judge himself split the baby in terms of the sentencing. The U.S. attorney wanted a larger period of time and, and the defense lawyer wanted less period of time. And so I went somewhere in the middle. I think the real question here, though, is the message that has been sent here, that if you follow orders when it's unconstitutional, when it shouldn't be done, that there's a consequence you have to pay. You cannot sort of shroud yourself in cover by saying, I was only following orders. And so I think the message that was sent out here is that it's not enough and good enough to follow orders when you, in fact, engage in conduct that threatens someone's life or some or conduct that's clearly unconstitutional and is fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think that the, um, uh, that the sentence itself was important. Uh, the length of time, to me, is not significant per se. I know everybody wants a period of time. But, but for police officers, getting jail time is significant. Because now they got to deal with the whole concept that their lives are going to change substantially and, and that they should have acted differently when it was time to act. They chose not to do it, and it's not enough to justify that you are following orders. So in that sense, I'm pleased that there was a sentence, and there will be 
the other two guys as well. And plus, they still have state uh, cases pending. But I think all these cases will get merged into the one on prison time uh, at, at, at the end of the day. Thank you very much. We've been talking with civil rights attorney John Burris. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The World Health Organization has declared monkeypox as a global emergency as the spread continues unabated. Also, does President Biden's mild COVID case prove that the pandemic is over? Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Yolandra Hancock. She's a board-certified pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist. Dr. Hancock, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much for having me. The World Health Organization declares monkeypox a global public health emergency. We have an outbreak that is spread around the world rapidly through new modes of transmission, about which we understand too little, said the WHO chief. Dr. Hancock, what do we need to know? We need to know that our numbers are continuing to increase. We now have over 6,000 cases of monkeypox that have been identified across more than 60 countries, inclusive inclusive of the United States. We also need to recognize that although the predominance of the infections have been within what we call the MSM population, men who have sex with men, it does not mean that other populations have been excluded. We just diagnosed in this country two pediatric cases of monkeypox just this past week. So it's important for folks to recognize that this isn't in a specific community. We made that same mistake with HIV. We have to pay attention to the fact that all of us are at risk The uh, benefit of the WHO identifying this as a global public health emergency is that it activates systems and money for us to be able to create what hopefully will be a coordinated response. In this uh, Common Dreams piece, it says that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control confirmed the U.S.'s first two cases in children. How concerning is that to you, and are you comfortable with the response from the United States, the CDC, the and, and the other agencies that are that are responsible for public health. I'm very concerned given the fact that we're seeing it in the pediatric population, as I just mentioned, the initial reports in the media was that it was within population within populations, uh, within the MSM population. And so the notion that this excluded anyone else was the first narrative. The fact that now children have been identified here in the States with it is concerning. The question is, what are we doing about it? I was just in a conversation with a colleague where I asked her, I said, do you know how to test for monkeypox? Do you know how to connect patients to the vaccine for monkeypox? And for both of us, the answer was no. I swear, I feel like we're in Groundhog Day. We're in the same position in July of 2022 with monkeypox that we were with COVID in March of 2020. There hasn't been the infrastructure that I would have hoped to be created in this country to strengthen our public health infrastructure so that immediately when the WHO acknowledges that this is a global public health emergency, and even before that, that there would be resources available. We know based on reports in our doctor circles that folks are struggling to be able to have the equipment to test people for monkeypox. 
There have been misdiagnoses among patients. And heaven forbid we try to get a family connected to perhaps get the vaccine. We know the vaccine is in short supply, and it isn't quite clear how I would access it in order to link patients to it, even if we knew that the vaccine was available. So what do we need to know about monkeypox? You know, I uh, I was watching this uh, video online and there was a there was an interview of, with a woman who had had it. And basically she said, yeah, I went to the doctor, one doctor and they had like no she was like misdiagnosed. Nobody knew what she had. Then she said when she thought she had it, she started calling doctors and they're like, nah, we're not going to see you. Don't come in here with monkeypox. So she like couldn't even find anybody to see her because they were scared of it. What do people need to know, like the symptoms and what should somebody do and you know, if we even have any of this information yet, Dr. Yola. Absolutely. So what usually begins uh, is what we call a prodromal symptoms, symptoms very similar to the flu, significant muscle aches, really high fever. After a couple of days, the patient will then develop what are called pox. They're like these fluid-filled blisters on the face, the hands, and sometimes it can be distributed throughout the body. But the interesting thing um, Mr. Vincent, with monkeypox is that it can show up in different ways. It's almost like syphilis. Syphilis, we always call in medicine, is the great imitator. Syphilis can show up as almost anything, and monkeypox has started to behave that way. We have seen patients reported with just a single genital lesion in their private area. I'm going to say private area because I'm a pediatrician. There have been nothing more than sores in the mouth, similar to what we call Coxsackie or hand, foot, and mouth disease, also known as stomatitis. So it can be unclear that this is monkeypox until a patient presents with widespread vesicles all over their body in a similar pattern to what we used to recognize as chickenpox. The difference between chickenpox and monkeypox is that monkeypox is painful. Chickenpox is itchy. Monkeypox is painful. You can be exposed with monkeypox and not have symptoms until outwards of 21 days later, which also makes the diagnosis that much more difficult. What I would say is the same thing we've said throughout this pandemic is operate in a space of caution. I work out often. I wipe the machine down before I jump on it. The treadmill, the weight machine, everything gets sprayed down, wiped down, and then I jump on the machine. If you're flying, spray the armrest down. There are going to be people who are flying that know they have monkeypox, but because they don't want to be in a foreign place with it, they're going to still get on a plane and fly home. This is when my OCD flare-ups work well for me. I want everybody to have a little hint of Dr. Yola's OCD wiping things down. We know that you can transmit monkeypox directly from contact with the pox themselves or the fluid from the vesicles. Any bodily fluid can transmit monkeypox. So that's vaginal secretions, semen, saliva, even respiratory droplets can result in being infected with monkeypox if you're in close proximity to the person and uh, neither one of you has a mask on. Yet another reason why I would tell folks if you're in a crowded environment um, to put a mask on. I know the the Omegas just had their conclave. All I could see was like a monkeypox COVID party happening (laughs) as they were hanging out. In this common dreams, as an alpha, I'm going to let that go. In the in common dreams, uh, here in the United States, the federal government has already ordered 1.6 million doses for 800,000 Americans, but these will not be available until the end of 2022. And then the next sentence is, as Kaiser Health News notes, most monkeypox infections detected so far have been in men who have sex with men and many of the cases are in Europe. That last sentence to me is a red flag to those in the United States. Don't worry about it. 
Right. And I think what that what it should read is Europe is prepared to test and treat. The United States is not. There's a lot of monkeypox happening right now that we have not yet documented because one, patients don't know. To Mr. Nixon's point, they may not know that that's what's going on. They may have a legion on their penis and think that they've got like the clap. They don't know what it is. And the doctor who's seeing them, because we're not trained to test for monkeypox, I will tell you right now, I know monkeypox is a PCR test. What swab, I do not know. I know Quest has a test, but I don't contract with Quest. I contract with LabCorp. I don't know if LabCorp has a test. I don't know if I swab the nose, the mouth, the anus, the penis. I have no clue because no continuing medical education has been provided acutely for us to know what to do to navigate through it. And I honestly believe, particularly on the continent of Africa, they are so much better prepared for public health crises because they've had to and they prioritized it. What we need to do is learn from the continent, particularly the western parts of the continent who have had to deal with monkeypox before, in order for us to know what to do. There should be an alert being sent out as of now from the CDC or public health organizations educating healthcare professionals on what to look out for, how to test, and how to treat. And what I will tell you, here in the state of Maryland, I have yet to receive any of those. Here's an interesting article I'd like to get your comments on. Biden's mild COVID case is proof the pandemic is over and everyone else should stop pretending otherwise. And basically, they talk about President Biden being in the um, in the high-risk category due to his age and, and, and previous health problems. And, and, and that gets back to when we say the pandemic, you know, what are we really saying? You know, there's a lot of semantics here. But at any rate, your, th- your thoughts on, the, uh, on that particular article. The pandemic's not over. The numbers speak for themselves globally and here in this country. We know that we are still in the middle of another surge with BA.5. The point that the author makes, I think, is a little bit misdirected. The fact that Biden is boosted times two speaks to the importance of being vaccinated so that we can navigate through this pandemic. But when you look at the numbers, We still have close to 40% of those between the ages of 50 and 64 who have not yet received their first booster. We still have 30% of our seniors over the age of 65 who have not yet received their second booster. You cannot compare how Biden's outcome is to where the rest of the country is. We know that because of BA.5, we've seen an uptick in deaths. They have now doubled per day. They were averaging around a little less than 300. They're now close to 500 because of this variant that can escape even previous immunity. What this author should be focusing on is encouraging people to get boosted up or to protect themselves from getting COVID so that their outcome is similar to the president's. When he says that because Biden made it through that the rest of the country also will, and all we have to do is focus on getting people vaccinated, well, guess what? That's what we've been doing. And we have only had moderate success. When we see school systems getting ready to put mask mandates back in place, it's because we know the BA.5 variant can evade both immune response both due to the vaccine and to natural infection. So it isn't as simple as get vaccinated or get COVID and get over it. We know that with these new variants, we still are at increased risk of getting the infection, given how transmissible it is and how much it can escape current immune protection. I think that this person needs to take a course in immunology and virology before they write another article. And to your point, what jumped out at me about this piece is what does Joe Biden and Donald Trump's treatments say about disparity in treatment in this country? And what we don't know about Joe Biden is long haul impact. 
Absolutely. To both of those points, one, we know that it's still a struggle for people to access Paxlovid. Uh, President Biden has access to a personal physician and all of the means in the world to make sure that he recovers from COVID. Um, my, my grandmother doesn't. My 92-year-old grandmother and 93-year-old grandmothers, they don't have the same uh, forms of access. We do have these test-to-treat centers, but we still know that there are providers who are refusing treatment because the patient, quote-unquote, doesn't seem that sick. That has been a conversation within doctor circles of mine where they have been denied treatment, even as physicians, because they don't appear to be that ill, even though we now have ample supply of this vaccine, right? We have to pay attention to what these disparities are, even now in terms of access to care and what that looks like for black and brown people. And to your point about long COVID, we do not know yet what President Biden's risk is. What we do know based on data is that the more frequently you get COVID, the higher your risk is of developing long COVID. That study just came out two weeks ago. When you add that in with not being vaccinated and that risk already being between 10 to 30 percent higher than those who are vaccinated, you continue to increase your risk of long COVID and then the complications from it. Not just physical health, but financial health, given the level of disability that we are seeing associated with long COVID. Well, let's just hope that uh, President Biden doesn't experience brain fog because that would be a that would be a major problem. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Iraq will be hosting a critical meeting between the foreign ministers of Iran and Saudi Arabia as U.S. plans for a Middle East NATO appear to be falling apart. Also, the demand for the U.S. to stop occupying Syria and stealing its resources is growing. Joining us now to discuss this, we have James Carrier. He's a writer, activist and podcaster. James, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Oh, you good to be here. And what's your site? What's the name of your website and your podcast? Leftisdead.com, the Left is Dead podcast. All right, the Left is Dead. Iraq said Saturday it was preparing to host a public meeting, public, interesting, of the foreign ministers of Iran and Saudi Arabia as the two rivals seek to mend ties. This could be major stuff here. And uh, the thing about it is that I think is of great consequence is that Iran and Saudi Arabia are two countries that both both have interest in joining uh, BRICS, and and uh, they seem to be working with uh, Russia and China. It seems to be this new world order. There's some big things going on. James Carey, make some sense of this. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of leverage being played here, right, with everybody. Um, Iran and Saudi Arabia, they both have, well, Iran's obviously had issues with us for the last four decades. And Saudi Arabia has had issues with us for the last four years because we've suddenly, there's news that actually says something about them and they don't like being questioned. 28 pages come out. But I think you have Putin, who's become this power broker since Syria and sort of a peace broker. And as he's kind of touring this region and making these new alliances with people, um, I think he's telling some of them like, hey, if we're going to do this, you have to move to at least do something. And I don't say that Iran and Saudi Arabia are going to come back together in any meaningful way. I think the Saudis are going to prioritize the relationship with Israel, and they're probably hoping to do that under a Republican administration. But I think that in order to play ball and threaten the U.S. properly, 
with Russia, I think they have to go make some actual peace with Iran. I think Iran's going to need some guarantees because, frankly, there's a lot of people out here with a lot more power than they had six months ago when the, you know, the economy wasn't so bad. There's Iran and there's Russia and China. There's these people that were shut off that have a lot more power than they did just a short while ago. And I think you're seeing that certain people are making their demands known now, you know, whether it be Russia, Iran, Turkey. Uh, I think you're just seeing players negotiate out how they're going to work this because some of them don't actually want to go, but some do. You know, I think Iran, Iran has nowhere to go anyway. They're going to go east. Uh, Turkey, well, you can't trust that. They'll, they'll always stay west. And uh, the Saudis, they know they own most of our debt. So where are they going to go? You know, there's a play here for them, too. But I think that we're just seeing a shift, and it's, it's everyone's going to try and get what they want as they shift into place, but certain players are going to be more well-intentioned than others. To your point about certain people are making their demands known, what about the fact that this next meeting is going to be a public meeting, as they say, unlike previous encounters which were secret and held between intelligence and security officials? Uh, speak to that point, as well as your point, Turkey always goes west, uh, wondering if now... Uh, the relationship between Putin and Erdogan, along with what Turkey would see as a slipping or a failing West, could move Turkey uh, in another direction. Well, Turkey, I'll start there. I don't think they necessarily want to go east, but um, I'll get back. I'll actually get back to that. The Iraq, uh, the Iran, uh, Saudi meeting. Them meeting in public, I think, again, is another move to nobody likes Joe Biden. The global south doesn't like Joe Biden. None of our allies are going to like him in about three months here when it starts getting cold. Um, they are ready here, man. I mean, Europe's rationing out gas. This is a good play for, you know, the Saudis even because Joe Biden rejected them so openly. Trump loved them, you know, and re- forgot about all this stuff. Um, and Biden tried to virtue signal over Khashoggi, right? So now he's... You've got to go there and beg for oil to bring, you know, production to be brought up. And I think you're seeing that uh, there's things that they can do to make Biden even more embarrassed. I think they are going to make sure the Democrats are wiped out. you got APAC taking out moderates over here, you know, primarying them, paying for their opponents in a primary. you got the Saudis pushing to, um, you know, really just bring us to beg to them. And I think the thing is, is they don't like it. Now that people in the U.S. are not just questioning our own system, but that leads us to question brutal systems outside of it, right? So people are like, well, you're shooting people here, but also what's up with these Saudis? So uh, there has to be some leverage play to sort of stifle even liberal criticism in the United States by the Saudis. And I think restoring diplomatic ties with Iran is probably a very good one. And I think if there's a man to get you to go out and do it for cameras, it's probably Putin. As far as Turkey goes, under Anyone else, I'd say they want to go west, but I think they want to be independent under Erdogan, which, yeah, you can't do that without the NATO nuclear weapons in your your, your yard. You can't do that without the guns that NATO supplies you. You can't do that without the air power and things that they would provide behind you. Plus, Turkey's put, you know, Erdogan's put most of his pilots in jail anyway. So I don't think that um, you see too much there besides more of Erdogan. As far as it goes to Syria, there's more of Erdogan kind of pushing to go into it. He wants what he wanted from the U.S. He wants what he wanted from Trump, that Trump said he agreed on on the phone, right? He wants to manage northern Syria. And I think that is still going to be a demand. And you see him making demands on NATO to, like, counteract these two forces. You know, he's backing out. He's saying, oh, I could back out of 
Finland and Sweden joining any day. So um, he makes the majority of his military spending. I mean, there's got to, the only reason the Turkish economy has to be alive still is because of Western money pumped into it. But the thing is that Erdogan is just trying to he tries to play both counterweights off each other, and it's a dangerous game trusting him. But I highly doubt Putin trusts him. He might be able to get one over on Joe, but he is a much more savvy political operator than Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman probably needs to go do this for himself just as much as he needs to do it for Russia, you know. And but Erdogan, he can do whatever he wants. He can flip on you the next day. You'll never see it coming. Do you think that? Um this time, because of the dynamics going on here, because, you know, that we've seen for the last few years, Iran and um, Saudi Arabia have had discussions on and off. Um, but there's a lot more at stake now. We see Saudi Arabia making, in my opinion, some moves away from the U.S. empire. They're building this gigantic de- refinery. They've got this big um, pro- uh, uh, project with, you know, their number one um purchaser of oil, China, where they're building a giant refinery in China. They've certainly, what was it, it was very interesting that right after Biden left, within a few days, uh, MBS was on the phone talking to Putin, and they were reiterating how wonderful their friendship is. Do you think, yes, they've had these discussions in the past, but the dynamics now mean there's a lot more in it for Saudi Arabia to start making a shift away from the U.S. um, and more towards the East? I will say there's, yes, there's a chance now because who needs this to happen the fastest, right? It's Russia. They need this order like today. And they, it would be great if we could switch overnight. And I think that these other players who have no voice in the West, you know, we just kind of, it, it's best we have Saudi Arabia who we keep quiet about and Israel who we keep quiet about, but we don't, you know, it's an uneasy d- detente. Um, but as far as going East goes, they have, this is a great period because this is a time to ask for what you want, right? It, you see Erdogan at, uh, pushing for control of northern Syria from Russia rather than from the U.S. Uh, you see the Saudis going to speak to Iran rather than going to talk to Israel. Um, I think you're seeing people making trade-offs. You are seeing people make trade-offs. The thing is that Russia needs to make them the fastest, and I people know that. MBS knows that. Um, they can embarrass the U.S. for quite a long time. We'll take it. You know, Lord knows we'll take it. But... I think that they're seeing a chance to actually, they have a little bit of leverage here. They have a chance to, I mean, Saudis have always, as a member of OPEC and everything like this, but everyone's seeing a chance to not just go with Russia and slide along easily, but as this thing restructures, they see the urgency for Russia, they see the urgency for the U.S., and they know both of these powers could be given to give them huge concessions right now. Orinoco Tribune has a piece, Vladimir Putin, Washington should stop stealing Syrian oil. Uh, He's called on the U.S. to stop the practice of looting Syria's natural resources. And, of course, this also ties into uh, Israel trying to tap into natural gas reserves. Speak to that, and and what does that say about alignments and relationships? Yeah, this is the northern Syria part. I mean, the fact that we haven't left is odd. And I think you may see something where, like, there is a willingness to give some space to Turkey because— Turkey kind of controls the guys in Idlib. Turkey wants the PKK or YPG or whoever out of northern Syria. And there's this question of how do you get the U.S. to leave? Um, are you going to fight them with a NATO ally? Or are they going to have to retreat to a NATO country like Turkey? Um, the thing is, we are desperately grasping for resources. Chances are most of that oil goes to Turkey and the EU. But we are desperately grasping. We need anything. I don't know how bad we'll fight for northern Syria, but... 
I don't see what, how we can get out of it. The thing is, that you see the U.S. has really blown any chance they've had to do any alternative. Um, I think the biggest thing we've seen messed up recently is the talks with Iran. You have Iran in a stronger position to ask something out of Russia than ever before, and to ask, you know, to ask the Saudis to come over and reopen an embassy when they talk to Putin. Um, there's nothing that the U.S. can do. There's nothing that they can demand of anyone, because if things get tight in northeast Syria, Tur- what's Turkey going to say? And Turkey knows, Iran knows, Iraq knows, Israel's operating out of northern Iraq. There's going to be a problem there, you know, as these things, if they really do get encircled there, you're going to see a big problem because you're going to have the war in Ukraine, but suddenly there's actually U.S. troops there openly, you know, that we have on paper at least. Um, with Ukraine, it's kind of fine to get Ukrainians killed because we can just ignore the bad parts of it and the occupation parts of it. But in Syria, we can ignore the occupation parts of it until, say, something happens and may they make a big deal out of it because it wouldn't look good if Russia, if we could blame something on Russia in northeast Syria because that would be our chance to find another way to another front to wage war on them. But at the same time, if we haven't got anybody to sanction them yet, I don't know that we will. Um, it seems to me uh, the um, the U.S. is in a tenuous position in more so than in my lifetime um, in the Middle East, in that they're, you know, that, you know, Traditionally, Saudi Arabia was, you know, very, they were very close with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, of course, Turkey being the NATO member. But it seems to me that one of the things that's happening, James, is it's tougher and tougher for these countries, leaders, to continue to support the U.S. as their um, you know, the, the, the population, the people on the street are pushing back about normalizing relations with Israel. When you look at the, um, the Ukraine uh, issue, the more and more of the people on the street in, uh, in, in Turkey, the numbers say in Turkey and also throughout the Middle East, um, lean in favor of Ukraine. So it seems to me that the U.S.'s position in, in, in the Middle East is dramatically weaken, weakening and at a very rapid pace, James. Yeah, I will say, I think everybody wants us out of there. If there's one thing that is important to Erdogan, it's the fact that the man wants to trade with Iraq. The man wants to trade with Iran. The man wants to do business. He would like to do business with Syria. He would just like to have him running the special economic zone up north. He's going to make demands, but uh, I think that Erdogan will always sort of stay west. But there's going to be these, I think there will, like we've talked about this before, there will be this non-aligned movement, right? And I think Erdogan is one of the best examples. Um, MBS, again, you know, is a debt holder here and stuff like that. I don't think he's smart enough to maneuver it quite like this. And I think that's why he's going to Iran to do something he won't do. But at the same time, even with the backlash to their normalization with Israel, I think that Russia could also push them to cooperate with Israel to some extent. Uh, They'd probably be better at it than we would. And the thing is, we, we have such a weak position now because we, our economy is falling apart. We couldn't make it go with Iran. We couldn't make it go with Venezuela. We couldn't get these oil supplies running. And now the Saudis see that. You know, they saw us blow up these Iran talks, and they see, well, look, they got nothing, but their next choice is come here and beg. And what did we do? We went and begged. So I think that everyone is just seeing our weak position. And they, yes, Russia's economy is quite a bit weak, too, you know, higher GDP per person than Ukraine. But, um, you know, Russia's economy, it has been hit a bit, and it's, it's like, well, it's like two powers to like work against each other. One that's going to say, hey, don't cut up that journalist and put him in a box, and one that says, like, what journalist? You know, who cares about Jawal Khashoggi? And honestly, he's a warring member of a royal family. I think you can get over it. Um, but I think that the people are seeing the U.S. We're begging. 
we're begging, right? We sent a delegation to tell Maduro we'd talk to him down in Venezuela. We're talking, we tried to do Iran, but couldn't because Russia was at the table. So, you know, we wouldn't have done it. But the fact is we've blown every other alternative. And I think that people see that we have nothing to do but try to turn the old system back on desperately, and it's not working. I just want to quickly go back to the point regarding uh, uh, Putin saying that Washington should stop stealing Syrian oil. Because uh, they say in the piece, last month, U.S. occupation troops smuggled over 100 tanker trucks filled with oil plundered from Syria's vast oil fields. Dozens of trucks packed with Syrian wheat were smuggled into U.S. bases. And then you've got this fight between Lebanon and Israel over the Karish gas fields. So with Russia making this point in Syria and strengthening relationships with Iran, it seems as though there are growing points of contention for the U.S. over resources in the region. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing that's been turned on since we showed up in the 2000s. You know, there's been no new infrastructure. Well, no, not from us. No new infrastructure that's really functioned or anything like that. The oil coming out of Iraq is, has not been where we needed it to be by now. Um, yeah. There's there's no U.S. credibility, right? We saw before the pandemic, like right before we all uh, had to shut down, we saw World War III was about to begin with Soleimani, right? I mean, the U.S. has lost its credibility anywhere that needs the energy resources out of. Um, and the fact is, I don't think that I don't. I'm not sure. I mean, Turkey took the S-400 over the F-35. You got the Iranians will make deals with everyone else and they're in a strong position now. I think the U S is the fact is the U S is surrounded no matter where they are in the region, even by their allies, you know? So we are going to feel it worse. And I think that we're, the only thing to do is make peace with Russia, honestly, but yeah, we have no, we can't go anywhere. I think Ukraine is probably the first time we see, we won't even admit the special forces there. We've lost our ability to do anything but virtue signal. And I think that in Northern Syria, where we're probably pumping that, again, that oil out to Turkey to keep them satisfied, even though they were taking it when ISIS controlled it just fine. They didn't care. That oil has been flowing out of Syria, you know, so I think that's just factored into our normal supply. And uh, it's stealing, yeah, but we're not going to call it that. I, the question is, is, are you going to confront the U.S. militarily? Because that's one of the few places we remain, right, it's openly, uh, that or Iraq. But I don't know what the what does the U.S. do if it's attacked? Nothing, I guess. I mean, we let the Russians shoot down their jet over Turkey. We never really went in, quote unquote, to Syria, which I hate. I, you know, Obama did plenty, but there's nothing for us to do but virtue signal. I mean, what would Joe Biden do if, say, ten special forces guys got killed in northeast Syria by probably some Turkish mercenaries? Honestly, because that's who will probably end up doing it. So there's also the, the military play. Who could end up doing this may make it different too, um, and who could end up actually confronting the U.S. in certain parts of the region. Israel, you know, we see this. They have power to do what they want. They can make a shut up about a journalist. So there's no poll there. There's nothing the U.S. can do but virtue, literally be a virtue signaling empire at this point. Let me ask you this, James. Um, this, With the U.S. making all this noise about they're ready to use force or whatever, any means necessary to stop Iran, and they're practicing attacking Iran with Israel, it seems to me that Saudi Arabia saying we're making a deal without Iran, et cetera, is almost like a blocking mechanism that they're like, we got a minute and a half. Your thoughts. Are they kind of, are, they, are there forces now saying, 
saying we're going to do this to block that because it gets awful hard for Israel and the U.S. to do it when the Saudi Arabia, if the Saudi Arabians are finding uh, peace with Iran. A minute and a half. Yeah, it definitely would be. Uh, it would blow up the whole King David Accords or whatever, you know. Um, I think that, again, just like MB- MBS and Erdogan, I see this very character- characteristically de- evasive tendency in both of them where you don't necessarily know what they want. The thing is, you can see what the Saudis want with the U.S. because it's much more open. Like, they don't give a, they don't care what they ask us for. They don't care that they ignore the journalists. But when it comes to weighing, um, you know, these considerations of joining with Israel or trying to make some type of alliance against Iran, I don't see Mohammed bin Salman giving that up. Maybe he can be brought to at least stay out of a military alliance, but I don't see his rhetoric changing or at least his trying to get tied to Israel changing. But, um, you know, hey, maybe this helps the population in his country think that it's not quite that. Uh, he's, he obviously hasn't signed on in the King David Accords for a reason. He doesn't let any Israeli planes in his airspace for a reason. So clearly someone's mad about it. Uh, he had to cut off, you know, cash transfers to the West Bank, Gaza. So his population isn't happy about it. Um, and then maybe maybe that is it. You know, maybe he's finally felt that, oh, yeah, it's going to be tough to undo 70 years of this programming. I put in my people. I may want to talk to somebody else who's, uh, you know, and the other Muslim power who is willing to make this sort of both religious and, you know, regional peace with me. And maybe there is some consideration of that. I hope there is. I hope there is, but I don't trust Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, thanks a lot. We've been talking with James Carey. You're, list- you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Pope Francis is expected to apologize to the indigenous population during his upcoming Canada trip. Also, the bodies of Native Native American children have been found in New Mexico. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Levi Rickard. He's an editor and publisher of NativeNewsOnline.net. Levi, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Hey, I'm happy to be back. Great. You know, you I see that you wrote an article here recently and it says it's called Indian Country Must Push Back on Conservative Attempts to Whitewash Boarding School History. And it starts off about 30 years ago. I made a deal with myself to read at least one book a year written by a conservative right winger so that I could try to understand the rationale behind their positions on race relations and governmental policy. As the years flew by and the United States became extremely polarized, I stopped reading conservative writings because I found many of their arguments lacked merit and were quite often mean-spirited and laced with paternalistic attitudes towards people of color. Levi Rickard, your article, your thoughts. Well, it's actually in reaction to an article that was published by the American Conservatives earlier this month. Uh, One of the senior editors, Helen Andrews, wrote it, and she basically wanted to she basically saying that the, the Department of the Interior, Interior is making a big deal of nothing when it comes to Indian boarding schools. And uh, argued ultimately that assimilation was very necessary. They had to do what they had, did to these Native children 
just in the name of assimilation and to kind of, in a sense, take us out of the dark ages because we were, what, the savage, uncivilized people and, and didn't know how to take care of ourselves. So therefore, they had to do that. And I just, I guess, as a publisher, editor of Native News Online, I felt like it's time for Indian country to push back on this narrative because if we're ever going to change as a people and heal as a people, we need to be able to be part of the narrative, write our own narrative, tell our own stories these days, and not always listen to what these uh, conservative people are trying to tell us we need to believe in or, and basically say hogwash. This really wasn't so bad what happened to Native kids where children did die at these schools. And and uh, it's a travesty. That's why the pulpit's in Canada this week, he made an apology to the First Nations people up in Canada today, and uh, I think it's just time that we as Native Americans, and certainly I have the vehicle with Native News Online to really push back. In fact, in this article, Andrews writes, this attempt to create a national scandal over Indian boarding schools is a thoroughly political scheme contrived by activists to stoke outrage regardless of the facts. Then she goes on to say, the strange thing about the residential school outrage is that for decades, the issue simply did not exist. Well, that's really just the standard white supremacist narrative. We can go back to stories of the happy slaves. Uh, we can. There are all kinds of revisionist histories and narratives. Well, of course, for decades, there was an outrage from her perspective and from her community and from the interests that she represents. That has nothing to do with those that were dramatically impacted by the white supremacist nature of the American political system, American conquest, and this whole idea of manifest destiny. That's very true, and it's about suppressing the people. And and that's why I wrote the editorial the way I did yesterday. It's time for us to, to stop letting them do that to us. It's time for us to get control of our own narrative, and it's so critical. Now, the point she made about it was not an issue, it has always been an issue. It just, quite frankly, some of our elders are not able to talk about the, the, the hurts, the pains. These, some of these people were raped, sodomized in these boarding schools. I was uh, in Oklahoma City uh, two weeks ago on Saturday, two weeks ago this past Saturday, and when uh, Secretary, Secretary of the Interior Holland, Deb Holland, was there to start hearing the testimony from the survivors of the Indian boarding schools. And an 84-year-old man talked about being sodomized for years and years. And other Native people, elders, finally talking. One woman said, I was not even able to talk about these, this, the, the, the atrocities that happened to me up until two years ago. Said she's been through various counseling therapy sessions sanctioned by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Five of them, she said, different. She said she's still in therapy twice a week just to get through this. And these are things that happened to her decades ago. And and so the, the scars, the, the, the wounds, the healing that needs to take place is, to me, a good starting point is to get those stories from people who 
They, they, the, the white people, the conservatives may think it was not an issue, but it has been an issue to our people for a long time. We were talking about it among ourselves. They just weren't hearing about it. Well, the other thing, when I read, when I look over this person, basically saying things like, well, these things, you know, if they happen, there wasn't much to them. They probably literally saying like, well, yeah, you know, they probably died of tuberculosis or something like that. It's what you see is this flat out denial. It's like I'll put it like this. When we hear people scream about Holocaust denial, this is exactly that. You read this American conservative article and I walk away with one thing, Levi. I walk away with a person reading it saying this person is basically saying we got to deny it because we aren't really against it. That's what I hear. A person who's denying it because they don't oppose these kinds of atrocities and they're still in favor of settler colonialism today. So they can't possibly say, yeah, this stuff happened and it was wrong. Levi. Yes, yeah, and it, I, I, you know, I didn't. I ran out of space, quite frankly, in my, <laughs> in my column yesterday. But she, you know, she, you brought up the tuberculosis thing. It was so interesting. She said, you know, these native, these these Indians were just spitting on the ground, spreading tuberculosis, and as if they had to take our kids out to teach us how to do something. Now, I, I'm going to go back to um, what what is known as now indigenous into, uh, intelligence. You know how many pharmaceutical companies have ripped us off because we were able to provide them with the plants for healing methodologies? They have literally ripped us off. So don't tell me Native people were just sitting around, and they're the ones who brought us TB. We did not have tuberculosis until the white settlers came. So for her to even put that in, it really incensed me. And like I said, I ran out, ran out of time, and uh, I, I may even address it in a separate column because that, really, that one really made me mad. So talk about now, Pope, the Pope apologizes for, quote, evil committed by so many Christians in Canada's residential schools. Pope Francis today has begun a long sought act of reconciliation in Canada, decrying the country's catastrophic residential school system for indigenous children and asking forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians. I'm deeply sorry. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. Pope Francis spoke to this. Talk about his admission. Talk about his asking forgiveness. I didn't hear him talk about reparations. No, he, he didn't. And, and I, I thought it was interesting how he mentioned how the Christians, the church supported this this whole notion of, uh, of the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppress indigenous peoples. What's interesting enough is he blamed it on the government because it, when when I read that line, basically saying that they just supported that that whole effort, and and I, I think, and I'm not I'm not a lawyer, but my I surmise. They have to coach. He has to really watch how he says these things so that the church won't be sued, per se. Correct. Correct. And, and yeah, and, and I think that's really the, the essence of it. It always comes down to money, and we know that, especially in a capitalist society, that people are so careful when they do these apologies and they kind of give that corporate line. And, and he kind of took that corporate line even today um, with that. And, and you know, and I'm not I'm not Catholic one, but but 
my my sense is he's kind of a sensitive man. I mean, in comparison, because the uh, the conservative uh, uh, Catholics here in the United States, they they really oppose some of his 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 lines. So I will say this: I do applaud the fact he's even there. Uh, he didn't have to come, obviously, but is it far enough? Uh, reparations need to take place. Uh, something needs to be done. Something needs to be done. Back in 2009, the United States Senate passed a resolution apologizing for slavery, but written into the resolution was this cannot be used as a basis or to justify reparations. Yeah. It, it, like I said, it all goes back to money, right? I mean, the capitalist society, the, 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 the white power base always are going to protect their own interests. And I think that th- this is why legislation is written the way it is, and even this apology way it's written right now so that we can't go back and and it's 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 yeah he asked for forgiveness and you know some people question that whole notion that forgiveness is 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 easily given among christians right jesus said he would forgive our sins well you know, does that mean we can really do it and do do anything and everything that we want to do, and all we have to do is ask for forgiveness and everything's okay? I mean, I, I'm not sure that's possible. I mean, especially when kids were 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 died far from homes at these residential schools. How do you how how do you how do you forgive that? And we're still in the United States. We've been Native News Online in the last year has done over a hundred stories. We have 120 stories. Actually, we have published over 120 stories since May of 2021. And so many of them talk about the tragedy of these kids who were removed from their homes their families, taken to reservations and they moved them farther and farther from home because these kids were literally at first running away. If, if, if you're five miles from school and you run away and you know your parents would hide you out. Then they got crafty. They took these kids literally thousands of miles from their homes. We just had a reporter flew with the family from uh, Washington, or excuse me, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to up to uh, Kodiak, Alaska, because they, they reburied this child from I think the late eighteen hundreds. And the community came out and um we're we're gonna publish the story soon. Um the photographs are so telling in, in, in the tragedy, the, the looks on the faces decades later of this, the hurt of this family. And think about a child being, being buried far from home, thousands of miles. And this is what happened in these boarding schools. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not go as far as to say that these children were murdered. Yes, some of them did die of diseases. But the idea that the government didn't have enough care Back even back in the 1800s, because they said they couldn't afford it, send these kids home. Every child should be where they're from their tribal community, or you know, especially in modern times. You know, white people wouldn't tolerate that. They wouldn't tolerate their children being buried thousands of miles from home. Give me a break. You know, and the other thing, and maybe this is, I don't know, being nitpicky, but this is the way I see it. When, when, he, when the Pope says, I'm deeply sorry, sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppress the indigenous people. You're saying that Christians kind of individually supported things, p- 
people did things and a colonizing mentality of the powers. Here's what you're not seeing. This was a culture. This was a cultural belief. This was a way this culture, this wasn't individual Christians or whatever. This was a culture that said, we can come in, we can take these indigenous people, we can treat them like they're not human, doesn't matter what happens to their lives. It wasn't just a few Christians or just the government. The entire culture went along with this. And so you can say the Christians did it or colonizing powers implies some evil people at the top. It was an entire culture. And that's kind of what they can't say that our culture the culture that our culture today came from was pretty evil when it comes to the way they treated indigenous people. Your thoughts, Levi? It, it very was very much so, and, and um, they they really hate when we use the word genocide. But they 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 have had various programs, policies throughout the history of the United States. I mean, for instance, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which now exists under the heading or the Department of the Interior originally was established in the Department of War. So that, that lets you know right there. Back then, the government policy towards Native people was not to save them or make citizens out of them. We didn't receive citizenship until 1924. So back in the 1800s, early 1800s, when the Bureau of Indian Affairs was um, established and under the War Department, it, it was like to get rid of us. And so what happened was, the boarding schools really shifted. And the policy towards assimilating Native kids was shifted when they found out it was too costly to try to kill. They killed Native Americans in the plains, and they basically said, we can't kill all these Indians. There's too many, and it's just not going to happen. So they thought, they came up with this idea, well, let's take their youth. We'll get to the youth while they're young, change them, Americanize them, make them like us, and everything will be okay. And I argue and I write that Americans, the United States really has never known what to do with American Indians throughout history. Even now with the CARES Act two years ago, they screwed that up so poorly with the distribution of funds. And I, I remember writing, they still don't know what to do. They still don't know how to handle Native Americans. And even where we are all these years later, um, we, we still have a long way to go. And we just have about a minute left, and there was a piece from USA Today from October of last year. In a New Mexico park, the, bo the buried bodies of Native American children are evidence of genocide. We have just about a minute left. That's very true, and, and I think that when the American public agrees that genocide was committed against Native Americans, I think that we can start to heal it once we start hearing some of the admission of it. And so I will, I do applaud the Pope for doing what he did. And I'm not Catholic, but I think it's a nice step. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Levi Rickert. Levi is the editor and publisher of NativeNewsOnline.net. That's still uh, that's still up and, and going, isn't it, Levi? It's going really well. And we have a lot of readers, so. I hope your listeners come to it. Listen, uh, read us. Once again, it's nativenewsonline.net. Levi Rickard is the editor and publisher. Thanks a lot, Levi. I certainly appreciate having you on the show again. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Africans are complaining about the self-serving nature of EU energy policy. Also, the EU is suffering from a leadership crisis. And Russian energy major Gazprom apparently is cutting back on gas again to the EU. Joining us to talk about this and more, we have Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst and a friend of the show. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. Well, let's start here, Mark. This is one I have great interest in. Russian energy major Gazprom will stop the operation of Second Siemens Turbine, the company announced on Monday. As a result, supply through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline will not exceed 33 million cubic meters per day from July 27th. Business Daily Commerçant has reported corresponding to 20% of the pipeline's capacity. Uh, Things are getting a little tighter in the old EU. Mark Sloboda, what say you? Yeah, um, I I don't think that this is any surprise. Uh, We talked previously about European fears that um, Russia would completely cut off the gas supply uh, to the EU uh, even after the promise uh, to return the uh, first uh, turbine from Siemens uh, to exempt it from sanctions. Uh, and when the scheduled maintenance uh, was done at uh, during July, uh, when Nord Stream 1 was completely shut down for that maintenance. And I said at the time that I did not think that, uh, the, uh, that uh, either we could expect full flow uh, back to normal from Gazprom, nor them to shut everything down completely. And lo and behold, that's exactly where we're at. Uh, Russia does appear to be throttling uh, gas to Ukraine. Um, Gas still does transit uh, via pipeline through Ukraine, it must be said. So it's not just Nord Stream 1. But Nord Stream 1 will now be reduced to 20% capacity, where previously it had been reduced to 40% capacity. Um, And um, while... Uh, Gazprom says this is for technical reasons, that uh, they have a contract with Siemens, uh, and they're actually allowed to uh, remove pipes four more times in the next year, according to the existing contract, and send it for maintenance and repairs. I surmise that this is probably being done uh, to highlight once again the self-defeating nature of Western sanctions and exactly how much they need Russian gas. And uh, Mark, from the article that I read, it said that the current licensing agreement allows Siemens to accept five more turbines before the end of 2024, and that each each one requires three months to overhaul. So that's 15 months of this. And it also looks like, you know, it's it's incredibly, I think, favorably strategic on behalf of Russia to do this, because instead of just cutting it off full full service, it 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 demonstrates to those that are affected, look, all you guys have to do is play ball and we're fine. Otherwise, you're gonna continue to suffer at my discretion. 
Yeah, there, you're you're correct. It was five more turbines, not four. Um, and I I think that uh, you know Russia is is playing a certain game here. They're not making a political statement directly and mm-hmm. cutting off gas. They are throttling it and blaming <laughs> technical reasons uh, for the uh, you know related to sanctions uh, for the reduction in flow. Still. Being able to claim that they are reliable gas suppliers, even as the West weaponizes their entire economies and control of the global uh, financial system against Russia. So I think it is an astute move. It is an astute, astute way of firing back. It allows Russia to to, you know, cut down or to increase flow at their own discretion uh, based on the current state of relations uh, with European countries, the certain current state of their supply of the regime in Kiev with weapons and so forth. Um, And, um, uh, you know, they're basically keeping Europe at their mercy while also, um, you know, laying, you know, you know, Preventing the political shock uh, that might allow for greater unity in action by shutting all gas off completely. Well, here's the other thing, too. Not to go too far on this, but I think there's something that needs to be said. Recently, some of the people from the EEU have said, you know, Russia is using gas as a weapon. Let me read this to you from right after the war started. France declared an all-out economic and financial war against Russia on Tuesday that would collapse the Russian economy as punishment for its invasion of Ukraine. Quote, we're waging an all-out economic and financial war on Russia, Le Maire told uh, 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 France Info on Wednesday. We will cause the collapse of the Russian economy. I think they were pretty blunt there. So here's my thing. You say to Russia, we're in all-out economic and financial war. We will destroy your economy. Hey, wait a minute. You're cutting back. That's unfair. How dare you do that to us? I can't. Mark, it seems to me perhaps they have not reasoned out the natural um, consequences of their, quote, all-out economic war on Russia, but they're kind of finding out the hard way that sometimes if you shoot at a person, they might shoot back. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm here playing the world's smallest violin for them. <laughs> um, it's, it is, to me, remarkable how badly, one, uh, their analysis of Russian society and politics is, and two, how bad their uh, assessment and analysis of not just the Russian economy, but the global economy and their own economy is not to have foreseen this because we were all talking about this (laughs) in the run up (laughs) uh, to an intervention as the likely consequence of this type of sanctions. And lo and behold, it is I mean, there should be an entire array of foreign policy and economic experts uh, and officials who should be starting new careers in IT or something like that. (laughs) If there was any 
real accountability for how wrong they have all gotten this. But of course, there isn't. The the technocrats protect themselves and each other. Um, and they're just stumbling through this from one idiotic shooting themselves in the foot or the lung to the next. There's a, a, a Newsmax article. Trump says, Biden sends $60 billion to Ukraine for weapons to be obliterated by Russia. He says uh, Ukraine would have never happened under the Trump administration. Uh, Russia would have never done what they did, and they did it. Now, that's one thing I'd like for you to respond to. But the other thing is he says that he takes credit for pressing NATO nations to contribute their fair share. So to me, he's talking kind of out of both sides of his mouth. Because by increasing or fanning the flames with NATO, he was basically creating the scenario where we are now while saying this would not have happened had I been president. Yeah, I mean, this is just U.S. domestic politics. We shouldn't say take anything that Trump says on this seriously. I mean, not that I've really taken much Trump has ever said seriously, <laughs> to, 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 to be perfectly honest. But – um, it has to be remembered that dear, what, whatever Trump may have said personally on the campaign or as himself as uh, about improving relations with Russia, during his term of office, the, uh, there were some 80-some rounds of sanctions leveled against Russia, significantly uh, you know, uh, decreasing – their relations, you know, and increasing tensions throughout this. Um, and um, during his, the entirety of his presidency, the Minsk protocols went unfulfilled. Um, and uh, a NATO expansion, uh, the, the plans for it to do nations uh, continued. Uh, so I, I do not this is once again Americans again it's domestic politics whether uh Trump is in office or uh Joe Biden is in office or Obama is in process the foreign policy uh elite of the US their policy has not changed towards Russia and the expansion of NATO and uh I, I don't see any reason Russia had their own timeline for giving the Minsk protocol uh, a fair chance to work, right? While they also hoped for the economic deterioration of the regime in Kiev. But the West kept the IMF drip feed alive. They kept uh, building up Ukraine's um, military, uh, according to NATO fashion, and started the construction of NATO military facilities, uh, bases in Ukraine. Uh, and that all happened during Trump's presidency. And it just culminated logically where it did, uh, according to, uh, you know, what was happening in Russia and Ukraine, not according to who was president of the United States. It's not about you, Trump. It's not even about Biden. It's much bigger than all of that. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you. I, the only thing I would say is it's interesting to watch Trump attacking Biden's foreign policy when it comes to Ukraine and how that's going to affect the discussion going into the um, the midterms. But again, that's domestic policy. That's a, a very good point. And 
it, it'll be interesting to see whether or not American analysts get into the level or the degree of analysis that Mark just went into, or will will Trump be able to make those kinds of statements and they go unanswered? Well, yeah, let me add this. The thing about uh, American foreign policy analysts, as it were, is they don't want any nuance. So I think exactly. any way they can do this and avoid nuance. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Here's an interesting article in Sputnik, which I think is fairly obvious. Europe is suffering from a crisis of leadership as its ruling classes. Boy, this fits in perfect with everything we've talking about. As its ruling classes are detached from reality and lack the gravitas of the European leaders of the past, as has been revealed by the conflict in Ukraine, some experts believe. I think we're, we've got three of those experts right now. It's what we're talking about. The inability to foresee the consequences of their actions, Mark. The inability to even look at what's happening now and think, well, gee, it's obvious that the Ukrainians are not going to win. Perhaps we could go another direction. At any rate, yes, a, to, to say that they have a crisis of leadership is a dramatic understatement. They got a bunch of morons running, the, running you know, the inmates are running the asylums. Mark, Sloboda. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I don't think that it is just these current leaders at the moment, because the last slew of schlumps before this that led up to this, including Angela Merkel, who herself has since admitted, as Poroshenko has, that they agreed to the Minsk Accords just to stall Russia while they built up the Kiev regime's uh, military and their, quote, democracy, unquote, as she says, which means banning all opposition and seizing control of all media in the country, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is this has been building for years. These tensions with Russia, the expansion of NATO without taking into account Russia's national interests, NATO at the same time, NATO's, you know, um, flagrant um, uh, military aggression all across the Middle East, their anna uh, announcement of their intention to then pivot NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, to the West Pacific to contain China. I mean, made clear that they were just a vehicle for uh, power projection of U.S. hegemony. Um, and, um, you know, we just happen to fall on a particularly laughable set of uh, European leaders all at the same time. Whatever Angela Merkel's policies were, however bad they were, she projected an image of stable, thoughtful leadership, even if that actually wasn't the case. Instead, now in Germany, we have Olaf Scholz leading a haphazard um, a coalition of of political alignment, you know, with the, the green blacks or blacks, as I like to call them, since they seem to like burning coal better than, than gas, um, uh, the, the neoliberal, uh, uh, free Democrats and his own social Democrats. Um, he doesn't even seem to be in charge of his own foreign policy. That, that seems to be Baerbach and, and the greens. Um, and he just really seems that he is, he is not, capable of rising to the challenge of these times and changing course or even leading boldly, you know, uh, Europe, uh, you know, as the, you know, the largest economy in Europe uh, in the state of this, uh, you know, Macron has always been a second 
rate leader who imagines himself a great statesman and that not changed. Uh, it, uh, Italy hasn't produced a stable government that anyone can remember for the longest time. Uh, so um, and it's amazing the, the strongest political leader in Europe at this moment is Orban, whom the rest of Europe hates. Uh, you know, uh, both for his domestic politics as well as his foreign policy statements, which fly in the face of the rest of them. And Boris Johnson and probably Liz Truss after this. Wow. I mean, I, <laughs> Liz Truss. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Hey, but Kamala Harris, you know what? She may straighten the ship right out. I, I think Liz Truce and Kamala Harris would make an even better pairing uh, than than Boris Johnson and Trump. I I I I, I it, it would be a comedic duo of epic proportions, and I think simply on an entertainment value assessment, we must demand uh, that Kamala Harris and and Liz Truce are the next leaders of 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 the anglophile world because that will be entertainment worth watching there's an interesting line in this uh, sputnik piece europe's national elites have also gotten used to transferring their duties to the eu which relieved them from making important economic and political decisions with the actual decision making relegated to bureaucrats in brussels and frankfurt your thoughts yeah, I mean, it's certainly I, I think you can see that a, a large part of the foreign policy consensus is now being moved to Brussels. Um, and I, I think a, a larger part of the phenomenon you're seeing uh, across a lot of the EU countries is that for decades you've seen this triangulation of the center right and center left parties towards a neoliberal center where they are barely distinguishable. And the, the, the result of that has been a strengthening of the far right and the far left or, or you want to call it the alt-right and the far left, on the fringes, which has kept getting stronger because people keep getting disappointed that they go for, they shuffle from a center-right to a center-left government and nothing changes. And we saw this, this tidal wave that is slowly moving uh, you know, to the center of politics in France, uh, where Macron has now lost uh, a majority in the French parliament, putting him in a rather unusual situation of being a weak French president, uh, you know, not just in the nature of his character, but politically because he, he doesn't have complete control of the French parliament, as is the norm uh, for some time for French presidents. And we've seen this in another of other countries as well. Germany's ridiculous coalition uh, of the Greens, the SPD, and the Free Democrats is a is another sign of this. And you've seen the far light, far left, and the far right gain strength in Germany as well. People aren't satisfied with a center right, center left that results in no change and the same foreign policy. And uh, you know, leaders who are just a product of that triangulation and and don't offer anything, uh, you know, besides uh, spin and posturing. Thanks a lot. We've been talking with Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. 
Peace and blessings. We are out. 